This is Truth Encounter, and our study leader, Dave Wurtson, is reminding us of the reasons why believers are to sing when they gather, and what their songs should be about. Let's join Dave as he takes us back to a time when God's people would prostrate themselves before the Lord because they were so desperate. Other times they would throw their hands up high because God had just provided an awesome victory. All of us need to discover the biblical reasons to sing and to worship, to genuinely connect in a love relationship with a living God who is really there. We sit in our churches and we're half asleep, we're trying to get in gear and we're trying to understand what the Word of God is saying and our lives can seem very comfortable. When the pulsating reality of the Word of God is totally different than that. It's, it's about a real relationship with God. It's about facing real dangers in life. It's about handling tremendous threats against our own life and asking our Lord to provide a victory. And so the poets of Israel sang the taunts of the enemy. Now, how did God respond? It says, but you blew with your breath. So the enemy is blowing out their snorts and they're making their boast. Look how God responds. The Lord blew with his breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And you can just hear the Israelites thundering us as they have this picture of the elite of Pharaoh's chariotry sinking like lead. And the waters cover them up. And their enemy is taken away. And now they're safe. Now how did Israel respond in this historical moment as the waters cover them? Who is like unto thee, O Lord among gods. Remember that one? We've sung that a few times. Where does that song come from? You see, most of us sit here and we go, Who is like unto thee, O Lord among gods, who is like unto thee. Now I want to ask you, how would you sing if you had just spent a whole night thinking you were going to die? You were convinced you were going to die. But in the morning, the sun came out and your enemy had been destroyed. How would you sing that? And I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you because that's not going to work at all. What I have to do in my own life, you see, the, the hard thing to do in singing is to get reality connected with the internal structure of my life so that I can really start to see things the way they are. And to understand, like, what we need to do today is we can talk about Israel's victory, but as we move further into our lesson today, we need to not just deal with historical Israel's victory, but we need to think of some of our victories and some of what's happened to us. And that gives us a reason to sing. But I want you to, to try to go back in time to see how God's Old Testament people, when they sang those words, Who is like unto you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? They were not singing that in a vacuum. They had little kids that were still, their eyes were as big as saucers. Because they had just seen, they had walked through, you can imagine all these little kids going through the Red Sea and looking up at that water and, and the kids are saying, you know, man, what in the world's going on here? And you can see all these moms, thousands of moms that are trying to keep a hold of their, their little kids' hands going through the Red Sea. And then they get all the way across and all of Israel's in safety and they're on dry land. And then they look back and they see this thunderous chariotry coming after them that's going to destroy them. 
And then suddenly, whoosh, and all their enemies destroyed, all their enemies gone. And then the women take this tambourine and they start going out. And all the people start to sing. When they sang, he was like unto thee, O Lord among the gods. The little kids were shouting, that's right. He just opened the Red Sea for us and he destroyed our enemies. And it's that kind of spontaneity, that kind of, of reality that the Lord wants her to be in our singing. So they sang about the uniqueness of God among all of the gods of the ancient Near East who stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them up. So we have them in verses 11 and following recounting that God is in a class totally unique. God is in a class all alone. He is the true God. We can sing of that great wondrous deed today because of the fact, just think of it. Here we are about 3,400 years after these events took place. And we're singing to the same God. We're singing to the same Lord. Most of you don't even know the names of the Egyptian gods. If I were to ask you the preeminent God among the gods of Egypt, very few of you could say Amun or Horus or Re. A few of you that have been in college you know, history classes or in high school history classes can remember. But if I asked you, do you know the name God, Yahweh of the Old Testament? What about Jesus Christ, God's son? In fact, all the world will stop to celebrate the birthday of Jesus. You know why? Because these ancient Israelites hundreds of years ago said, Who is like unto thee, O Lord among the gods? As all these gods in the ancient Near East compete, and the Egyptian thinks their God is the one, and as the Babylonians think their God is the one, it's the God of this little desert people of Israel that's the true God. And that's the wonder of grace. Who is like unto thee, God is in a class all by himself. The God of the scripture, the God that we worship, does not compete with anyone else. He is in a class all alone. He alone is the true God. Now his love and his guidance and his protection is going to continue into the future. As the song closes, they begin to look not just to the past, but they begin to look to the future. In your unfailing love, you will lead your people. They're going to need God's loyal love as they move into the wilderness. And they're going to need God's protection to provide for them in the wilderness. You, according to your unfailing love, will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. When we study in the early chapters of Joshua about the destruction of Jericho, Rahab tells the spies, we have heard about God's great deliverance through the Red Sea. And it put terror into our hearts. So that's a historical fulfillment of what the musician was singing at this time. Terror and dread will be upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you brought by pass by. You will bring them in and you will plant them on the mountain of the Lord's inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands have established. The Lord will reign. The Lord will reign forever and ever and ever. What are these Old Testament people singing about? They're singing about the fact that they've just been delivered through the Red Sea. They've just seen this mighty act of God. They recounted the victory. Then they focused on God's total supremacy and his ability to provide for them and to protect them. And then they looked forward to the future. What was the future of Israel? At this time in their history, they were just 
several, two million people out in the wilderness with no land, no blessing, just there. And they sing about the future. They sing about the fact that the Lord that delivered us through the Red Sea is going to guide us through the wilderness and then he's going to take us into the promised land and he's going to establish himself in a holy place. And in that holy place, we will be able to worship him. Now, when they sang those words that I just read to you, when they sang about the Philistians and the Edomites and the Moabites, they're all going to be afraid of us. It was total faith when they said that. All they had was the fact that God had delivered them from Egypt. Because all of those enemies were out there ready to destroy them. As they would move through the wilderness and then move eventually into the promised land, there were already people that were occupying the land of Canaan. From a human standpoint, there was very little hope that they would be able to conquer that land. And yet this people believed, this people believed that they would possess that land. They believed that the Lord God that delivered them through the Red Sea was going to deliver them into their promised land. In history, though, did it happen. You see, as you look back on this, what they just described to you in many ways has already taken place. It happened in their Old Testament history. Now, we could deal with it further because ultimately it talks about a future yet when Israel is going to possess the full extent of the Holy Land and once again all the nations of the earth are going to come and worship in the city of Jerusalem. So what we have in this psalm of praise to the Lord that Moses wrote is also a prediction of the ultimate blessing. But we can also think of it in an Old Testament historical context. Now this is what I want you to get a hold of. The children of Israel drew upon their victory from the past to give them confidence to face the struggles of the future and they rested completely in the fact that the Lord could deliver on what he promised. Now you say, Dave, you've been in the Old Testament talking about Moses' ancient song. What do we sing? We're not Israelites. We weren't delivered through the Red Sea. We are not, you know, the, the physical people of Abraham. We're his spiritual people. What does that mean for us? I want you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. And let's see how the book of Revelation combines the song of Moses with the song of the redeemed in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 15, we read these words. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last. Because with them, God's wrath. Remember we learned that he's the God, he's the man of war, the warrior. With these seven last plagues, God's wrath, or his just judgment against planet Earth, is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass, unbelievable artistic expressions, kind of like the reflection pool in Washington, D.C., that you can see all of our Capitol buildings in that reflecting pool. The idea of that is the sea of glass, to have a reflection of this majesty and might, mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast, that's over the Antichrist, and over his image, and over the number of his name. Now notice what it says next. What did they do? They held harps, given them by God, and what did they sing? They sang the song of Moses, the servant of the Lord. What did you learn about today? The song of Moses, the servant of the Lord. But that wasn't their only song. I want you to see the next part of their song. 
They sang the song of Moses as servant of the Lord. And they sang the what? The song of the Lamb. Now notice the combination. They sang the song of Moses, but they sang the song of the Lamb. Why did they sing the song of the Lamb? Because for New Testament people, it's not the deliverance through the Red Sea. For New Testament people, it's a deliverance from your sin. For New Testament people, it's not Pharaoh who's the enemy, it's Satan who's the enemy. For New Testament people, it's not just a physical land that we're going to possess, but ultimately it's an eternal land. And the writer of Revelation is bringing all of that powerful imagery together, and he's saying that just as the Lord gave physical, powerful victories over the Pharaoh in the Old Testament, that you as a New Testament believer sing the song of the Lamb. And you sing the song of the Lamb because you've been delivered. And these are some of the words. Come, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And let's turn over to Revelation chapter 7, because the song in Revelation 15 is really just a further development of another song that believers sang in Revelation chapter 7, and we'll pick it up in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9. You got it? After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So what's the extent of the chorus going to be when these words are sung? From how many nations? Every one of them. That's why we are under a mandate to take the gospel into all the world with a passion so that we can have this kind of a choir when all of the people of the earth, notice it says every single nation, not just the United States, Not just England, not just Europe. It's going to be every single nation. In fact, it almost multiplies one word after another. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language will be standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. That's why we sing together on Sunday morning. Dave, why do we sing? One of the reasons we sing is we have to get you all in practice. It's real important to get you all in practice because you're going to be doing this. It's going to be one of the major things you do when you get home to be with the Lord in heaven. Now, what were they wearing? They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, this thunderous choir, you say, well, Dave, the Old Testament context is the people broke into singing and dancing when they were delivered from Pharaoh. The people that are singing here are people that had just been doing battle with the Antichrist. They had just faced those days of tribulation period. Many of them had lost their lives because of Antichrist and his cruelness and his viciousness against them. But now they have been taken to God's eternal home. And they are now healthy and strong and well forever. And people like that know how to sing. You might not know how to sing now. But when your body is transformed and all the cares of this world are left behind, when you have won those victories, you will sing. And it's going to be an incredible shout. I want you to see, for some of you that like your music real, real soft, I want you to notice it says, they shout it. When you've just had your life saved, 
When you've just realized that you're protected and that you're going to be well forever, you're going to shout, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. You see how tame our worship is? You all sit very comfortably. I mean, some of you are going to be Pentecostalized when you get to heaven. I love Bible churches because I love our commitment to the scripture. But one of the things I think that's hilarious is our bodies are totally tied up. You love to sing, and I lift my hands to Jesus, but no one will ever lift hands to Jesus because that might be like one of those believers that you're not sure what they'll ever do. So Bible church people will sing a whole verse, and I lift holy hands to you, but they'll never lift their hands because that would be, oh, no, you know, what's going to happen? In the old Methodist holiness tradition, when the Holy Spirit would really move in your heart, you would come down at the end and you would kneel down. And they made it comfortable, you know, as, as the culture began to develop. But the early Methodists would just prostrate themselves and pray to the Lord. That's what they were doing here. In fact, I would really encourage, you know, in your relationship with the Lord, if, if you get your whole body involved in it. I've often shared with you in the past, I've shared with you a few times. Remember when I was in high school one day? I read how Daniel, the prophet, when he was in the captivity in Babylon, how he prayed three times a day. And the Hebrew word, I didn't know the Hebrew word back then, but, but I read some kind of a note, and it talked about the fact that Daniel would do what they're doing here. He would prostrate himself. And I never forget, as about a 17-year-old kid, I was in my room all by myself, so no, no one would see me really get involved. And I just, I just got all the way down on my knees, and I put my hands totally down, and I just prostrated myself before the Lord. And I said, Lord, I really want you to give me the kind of wisdom that Daniel had. Now, I think the Lord really responded. Not that I had the wisdom that Daniel had, but the Lord made me make the right choice with my wife. Isn't that incredible? I mean, of all the women I, I could have blown it with, the Lord gave me the one that has all the right combination of talents I need. And I did that when I was only 20. I, was, I had to get my parents, not Mary's parents, but my parents had to sign my wedding certificate. So for some of you parents that are scared to death about your kids getting married, you know, we were really young. We could have made a really bad mistake, but we didn't. Because when you prostrate yourself before the Lord God of heaven, he does answer your prayers and respond to you. That's what worship is all about. It's just, just depending upon him. And really leaning upon him. We could have made terrible mistakes. I could have gone to Syracuse University Medical School. I came within a hairbreadth of going to Syracuse. And there never would have been all this life experience that we've had together in ministering the word of God to you. We came within a hairbreadth of doing that. I came within another hairbreadth of following my biochemistry teacher and says, No, Dave, just go down and take chemistry at Duke University. And then I'll get you into the medical school the next year. Man, I thought over that. If it wasn't for dear Mary, I probably would have done that. She said, no, you're a teacher of the word of God. That's what you need to do. But the Lord gives you wisdom at those crucial times. And life, as you look back over life, you see that hand of God. One of the things that we should do is to prostrate ourselves. And it's very important to do that in our hearts. To worship the Lord and to express adoration for the fact that he is the king. This idea of this prostration is the idea that it's like coming before a great monarch and you're expressing that he is your king, that he is your Lord, that he is the one who's in control of your life. And these angels, if the angels do it, 
and the elders do it, and the four living creatures do it, then certainly we need to do it. It says they fell down before the throne and they worshiped the Lord. What did they sing? Amen. You know what amen means? All the little kids have been saying, amen. You know, that means that's the end of the prayer. That's what I thought for years. In fact, that meant I could stretch my legs a little bit. The amen meant, whew, I can finally stand up after my dad just preached for the last three hours. But that's not what it means. Amen in Hebrew means you can count upon it. It's a word that means you can rest upon it. If I were a Hebrew, I would say, amen, this was built strong. And able to hold me up. This chair is holding me up, although most of the time I don't know whether it will or not. But amen means you can count on it. You can rest on it. So think of that when you say it's just a Hebrew word, amen. And all that it means literally is rest on it. In fact, maybe you want to say that. Whenever someone says amen, you echo it. Rest on it. You can count on it. That would be a good translation of that. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength, just piling one word after another, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You can count on it. Then one of the elders asked, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And I answered, don't you know? And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in the temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. Right now we live in a planet where there can be incredible injustice. And there can be those that are hungry. There can be those that face terrible suffering because of war. What the Lord Jesus, our deliverer, is promising one day for those that have trusted him. For those that have responded to, I love you, Lord, and I'm going to believe in you, and I believe you died for me, what he's saying is you might go through terrible times of hunger, you might go through terrible times of physical suffering, you might go through incredible times of emotional and spiritual suffering, but he says there's going to come a day when never again, never, never, never again will you experience that. He says, for the Lord is at the center of the throne and he will be their shepherd. What a marvelous image. He's going to be our shepherd, not just in this life, but forever and ever. And he will lead them to the springs of living water. How many of you have ever sang, I thirsted in the barren land of sin and... How many of you ever sang that song? See, you've been singing scripture all your life and don't even know it. There it is, the spring of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Don't you love it? You have streams of water that come from our eyes as we live here now. But when we go to home to be with our Savior, when we go home to be with our Savior, the Lord's going to take the waters from our eyes and He's going to use it as an image of bubbling springs of water, refreshing celebration forever and ever and ever. Join us next week as Dave is going to talk to us about sad songs and love songs. No, it's not the latest hits from Nashville, but some of the lead tunes God calls us to sing from His Word.